Amen. Thank you, CJ. Brandon, appreciate that so very much. Hebrews chapter number 10. If you find your Bibles, turn with me there. And uh, I am reminded this evening that a merry heart doeth good like a medicine. Amen. And it's good to smile and chuckle and things like that, especially when our burdens are heavy and many. It's good just to laugh and to smile and enjoy one another's company. And appreciate you participating tonight and uh, looking forward to what the Lord has in store. Always really look forward to these nights when we embark upon a new passage, a new section. Number one, we don't have to do a lot of review and things and uh, uh, pick back up, but we get to jump right in. This is a unique passage, too. It's one that I've thought about uh, for several weeks ahead and, and read and so forth. In fact, I was having a hard time sleeping last night, so about 2.30 I was up reading this passage and uh, just thinking through it and working through it and so forth. It's such an interesting passage, and it's, it, it's proximity and location to the surrounding passage are important, as we'll see tonight, and, uh, but it's really a, a, quite a fascinating few verses here. You remember, if, or, you, or you might remember, early on in our um, study here in our series of Hebrews, we commented and mo- remarked that within Hebrews, there's about five different um, exhortations, really warnings that are scattered throughout the book. And uh, we talked about, in fact, we looked at three already. In fact, here are the passages we've looked at, Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 3, about halfway through into chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 5, 6, kind of, you can assess different verses, part of that warning. But then Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 31, and then at the end of Hebrews 12, we'll get to. So this is the fourth one uh, of these five particular warnings or statements of exhortation found in the book of Hebrews, okay? So we turn our attention. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 26. Look there with me, if you will, and we'll read down through verse 31, the entirety of this little passage or section. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Verse 29, of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me. I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. Verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, this passage is similar to some of the other warning passages that we have looked at in in many different ways, but one such is that good men disagree on exactly who it's speaking of. Who exactly is the, the, uh, the, the group that is being referenced or talked about here, okay? Some believe it is believers, and some believe it is non-believers. Those who believe it's non-believers think it's those who, have, who are on the cusp of salvation. In other words, they've come all the way to the threshold of the door, Jesus Christ being the door, and they've heard all the truth, and they've gotten it, but they have failed to walk all the way through. In fact, then they fall away into apostasy is one view of this and so forth. 
I would submit to you, I believe the passage is speaking of believers, not non-believers uh, here. And you see that on our outline, okay? I believe it's likely written of or to, or I should say about really, uh, believers, uh, written about believers, not unbelievers. Let me share with you why. I'll give you three reasons why I believe it is so, and I think the scriptures say or speak that it is, okay? Number one, you'll notice the statement here, okay? The context points to believers being spoken of. The context speaks to believers being spoken of. We've just come off a, a unique passage, an enjoyable passage, and uh, as it uh, gave us a repeated command, or several commands, I should say here, specifically to who? People who've trusted in Jesus Christ, to believers, members of the local church, the family of God. You remember it. Let us do this. Let us draw near. Let us consider one another. Let us provoke all these. Uh, let us, let us, let us. Let us hold fast our faith. And then it says what? Uh, ourselves together. Let's not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And so you see, even the passage right before is, is leading into, and then we jump down and immediately, verse 26, look at what's mentioned here. We find two references immediately to the word we. It continues, shall we say, the same thought. The same thought is continued. It says we two times, and the entirety of the passage is used three times. You jump down to verse number uh, 30, and you'll see the usage there again of the word we. So here's another statement we will make. that As we look at the previous passage, and now going right into this passage, in fact, I think as you look at verse 26, he says, for if we sin willfully, you can see how he's kind of carrying on the same thought into this section of verses, into this passage as we described it here. It's a continual thought. Why is that important? Because he's just given us ways to ensure that you and I do not sin in this way. He said, let's, let's, let, let's hold fast our faith. Let us draw near. Let us consider one another to provoke unto good works. Uh, let, let's not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. That will help us then not do what is spoken of in these verses. We, we need to be careful not to give in to these sins or to fall into these sins or to choose to go that way. And so we see very much that uh, you and I are given the context by which we can then succeed and not falling into what is pictured here, the warning that is given, not given into it, if we might put it that way. In that sense, I think it's clear that the true Christians are being addressed in this passage. Secondly, I would see not only the context, but the phraseology indicates that this is speaking of believers, the phraseology. Now, this is a multifaceted point. We're, we won't delve greatly into the entirety of the passage just because we will do that in subsequent Wednesday nights. But I would draw your attention to at least two statements, two phrases, two clauses that are found in this section of verses that I think tells us that, okay, who, who's he talking of here? It's believers. It's believers, okay? Notice with me verse 26, if you will. Notice this phrase. After that, we, there's that terminology again, have received the knowledge of the truth. Now, the argument might be made, or some might think immediately, well, we're, he, he's just talking about having a head knowledge. You know, somebody can attend church, they can sit in Sunday school, they can go to vacation Bible school, they can hear the truth, they can have knowledge of it. Oh, I know who Christ is, even the devils uh, know there is a God and, and tremble, right? And so the reality is, we might say, well, uh, that's kind of referring to they have a knowledge of, but not faith in, okay? However, the wording of the phrase literally speaks of something much deeper and much greater. 
The word translated as received here, the Greek word, it, it, it literally means a definitive or a definite act, an action, something that is definite. I, I've done it. I, I've laid hold of it. I've taken hold of it. It's a definite action on the part of the person, okay? Add that to, it's been definitely received. It's not up in the air. Literally, the passage is saying this. It's in full possession. It's in full possession. I have full possession of this knowledge of the truth as it's described here in this little statement. And that is where the word that's translated, the Greek word as knowledge comes in because that term for knowledge literally means a full and complete knowledge. Nothing lacking, nothing that is missing, nothing that is, that is not uh, 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 present. It's a full possession of a full knowledge is literally the, the meaning of the phrase here. And so it, it dismisses the idea that this is just an acquaintance with the way of salvation. It's just, it dismisses just simply knowing about it. It's, I, I always love, as you know, to compare, especially the usages of Greek words um, with other scriptures in which they're used. And this Greek word here, used here, um, uh, that knowledge and, uh, uh, is used only in one other place. And actually, back up, the, the word um, is found in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Let's just look there, and I'll explain as we get there. This term, uh, the phraseology, knowledge of the truth. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2, if you will, and uh, we'll read verses 3 and 4. If you'll turn there with me, and 1 Timothy chapter number 2, verses 3 and 4. Notice what it says here. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verses 3 and 4. Tie the two verses together because it's presenting to you and I, Paul is, to Timothy and to you and I, things that are good and acceptable to the Lord. Notice this. He says this, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God and our Savior, verse 4, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. Okay. Now, as we think about that statement, you see the similar statement there, right? The knowledge of the truth. The exact same statement, exact same Greek words are used. Now, in that verse, what does he equate the, the knowledge of the truth with in verse number 4? Well, salvation, right? He look at it. He, he says, okay, hey, it, God wants all men. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God. He wants all men to do what? To be saved and come into the knowledge of the truth. He equates them being similar or equating them the same. Literally, what we are reading in the passage, what Paul is saying is, what is a good acceptable in the sight of God, the salvation of man? It's the, it, it is the knowledge of the truth that is a full knowledge of which they are in full possession because they have fully trusted Christ. They have fully trusted Christ. The repetitiveness of the idea of full, it's, it's fully, it, it's full knowledge, it's, it's full possession of this, this knowledge, and they are fully trusted in Jesus Christ. So we're here in Hebrews, much like Paul writes to Timothy, when we read, read this knowledge of the truth, they have the knowledge of the truth, they've, they've come to understand it, they've been in full possession of that, and salvation, they've trusted in Jesus Christ. It's interesting, too, that... Uh, Another example, chapter 3 of the very next book. If you were to look in 2 Timothy chapter number 3, Paul describes people who I call creeps, right? Creeps, they're the ones who creep into houses, unawares, the Bible says. And Paul writes to Timothy, beware of them. They, eh, they lead captive silly women, it says in that passage. But you know what it says about them? 
You remember what it says? Second Timothy chapter 3, he says this about them. It's quite interesting because it's the same terminology. He says, they're ever learning, never able to come to the knowledge of truth. Literally, they have, they, they have the facts. They, they have some knowledge, but they haven't come to the knowledge, that full possession of the full knowledge of the truth, of fully trusting in Jesus Christ. And so that is a common terminology. Again, one of those other reasons that I think uh, Paul wrote Hebrews here, we see some of the consistency in the phraseology and so forth. And we come to understand through looking at some of the other New Testament letters exactly what we're speaking of here in Hebrews chapter number 10. But there's also another phrase here in this passage, Hebrews chapter 10, that indicates we're speaking of believers. Look down at verse 29, if you will. Look down at verse number 29. It says this, wherewith he was sanctified. Now, that's a, that's a past tense. That's saying, hey, he has already been sanctified, who we're talking about in this verse. And what does sanctified mean? Well, we are all familiar with the word sanctified. We know that it means to be set apart. We also know that when we are saved, we're, we're set apart in uh, different ways. We're sanctified positionally, set apart in the Lord, and we're set apart for the Lord. Now, being sanctified for the Lord, being set apart for the Lord, is that progressive sanctification. It's a, a continual growth, the maturation process of coming into the very image of Jesus Christ and putting on Christ, as we saw in Romans chapter 13 on Sunday night. The gradual, continual process of that. But here, what are we speaking of when he says he was sanctified? It's not he is being sanctified. It does not say, hey, he is, he is in progressive sanctification right now. No, he's saying he was sanctified. Therefore, we know what we are talking about. We're talking about positional sanctification. When someone comes to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, they have been set apart in the Lord. Tonight, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you have the blessed assurance that Jesus is yours. Can I tell you, you've been sanctified. You've been set apart in the Lord. You're one of his. You're part of the family of God. You're, you're a child of the king. And so in sanctification, we are set apart unto that. This passage uses this in verse 29, wherewith he was sanctified. And you see the description even in that verse of uh, the reality of uh, what we are sanctified in and what we are sanctified by, the Son of God, his blood of the covenant, and so forth. So you see the reference to that. It's interesting. Again, I, I love comparing Scripture with scripture, Scriptures. They're the best interpreter, right? In this chapter, this is not the first time that Paul speaks of it. Look down at verse 14, if you will, the same chapter. Many moons ago we were there. Verse 14, it says this, For by one offering, that sacrifice, he hath perfected forever them that are, what's the word? Sanctified. Okay, here it is. He's being consistent in his presentation of the truth. He's saying, listen, they've been sanctified. They've been set apart. They've been positionally set apart in Jesus Christ. And so we understand by looking at verse 14, that certainly confirms what we're reading. Those that are sanctified positionally, he has what? Well, the verse said it. By one offering, one sacrifice, he hath perfected them. Okay, uh, we'll sing the song, we'll hear it sung, complete in thee. That's what it's referring to. We have been made complete in Jesus Christ. Nothing we could do of our own, nothing that we could accomplish of our own ability or anything of ourselves, but in Jesus Christ, he has made us complete. We have been perfected in the very sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And here, it is used to reference those that is being spoken of in this passage. 
So I'd submit to you, here we are talking about a saved person, a Christian, a child of God. We've been made complete by the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Then finally, I think there's another uh, third evidence to this fact. Uh, Very simple, but I think it's very true. The words of God himself confirms that this speaks of believers. Confirms that this speaks of believers, okay? So we see, number one, the context points to the believers being spoken of. Number two, the phraseology indicates that this is speaking of believers. And number three, the words of God himself confirm this speaks of believers. Look at verse 30, specifically the last part of verse 30. Okay? He quotes him, he quotes God in verse 30, the author does twice. First, he talks about, vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, he's quoting the, the Lord again, notice it. The Lord shall judge, what's the next word? His people. His people. And in this passage, we see a description of God judging. This is really what it's about. It's a warning. And, and we'll get into it in subsequent weeks. And he's saying, listen, oh boy, if you saw the judgment that God meted out on his people back in the Old Testament, those who, who did not obey and keep his commands that were his people, the Israelites, don't you think God will mete out the same judgment on his people today? So you see the indicator of the simple thing. In fact, I would just put it this way. You kind of see it um, here on the outline. It, it speaks of those that belong to God, the family of God, those who are saved. It's not speaking of creation, all of mankind. There's no indication in the passage of that. In fact, it's quite the opposite. To me, common sense says this. The Holy Spirit would not lead the human author to use a quote from God about God's people if the passage is speaking about those who are not his own. Why would he quote God talking about, he judges his own, but this isn't talking about his own. That doesn't make sense. That, that doesn't flow with common logic and understanding of how the Holy Spirit would lead the author to write the quotes that he would use. And so as we read and we see here in this verse, and again, the Lord shall judge his people. Literally, it falls under his judicial. And really, again, I don't want to jump ahead too much, but there is a judicial aspect about this passage. Even the, the terms used in the Greek and so forth, it, it speaks to a judicial ruling. And what he's saying is this falls under God's jurisdiction, specifically because we're talking about his people. Now, certainly all of creation falls under God's jurisdiction. He has the right to judge all and will in the days ahead and the tribulation and so forth. But this is particularly speaking about God's jurisdiction over his people. Again, another confirmation that believers are being addressed here in this passage. And what I also appreciate is that, um, again, there's good men who might believe differently and so forth. However, uh, what I appreciate is when men take that interpretation differently, we're all striving for the same thing, and we're all still making sure that it adheres to biblical truths presented elsewhere in the Bible. And uh, so very key in the interpretation of God's Word. Okay? It's got to be consistent with the rest of Scripture. So as I believe, and I think we've established that we understand that who is being addressed in the passage, let's look at the warning. So we say, okay, it, it, it seems to be addressed to believers. We're talking about we. We as God's children. We as the assembly. We ourselves, as the, the passage would say. So what is he warning against? Well, notice, first of all, Roman numeral number one, the action warned against, excuse me. It's simple enough, right? It's given to us in the first four words of verse 26. Look at them again. Verse 26 is this, for if we sin. So, number one, immediately, simplistic, right? We're, We're almost talking elementary. 
we're dealing with a warning against sin, but furthermore, let's understand we're talking about a specific group or grouping of sins. He's going to go on to qualify what sins are we talking about, what, what particular sins are we alluding to that he is warning us, be careful, be careful, Christian. Hey, believer, be careful, because we, we don't want this in you. It would be a terrible thing to fall into the hands of God. That's what it says, right? We just read that verse 31, and that's, a, that's really the, the catch-all statement there. Hey, be careful. We don't want to do that. So what is he warning about? Well, it sins here, but I also want you to say there's something, see there's something unique about that terminology. Uh, the verb is in a present active tense. It's in a present active tense. It's not talking about an action that is done, completed in the past. It's talking about present active. So what we have being described for us is not one act of sin. It's not you and I just uh, uh, falling into sin. We, we slip up and we fail in things as we will do because we're fighting the old human nature, sinful nature. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about the ongoing committing of sin. The active present thing, that I, I, I'm continually in sin. In fact, it could be described and has been described by some as a lifestyle of sinful action. It's not just done once, but it is done, repeated over and over and over again. We might essentially read, for if we go on sinning, if we continue in sin, it's literally what we could read into this passage, it's repeated disobedience repeated disobedience. So it's not a one-time occurrence. It's a reoccurring sin. That's a basic action that's warned against here. But there, as I said earlier, is more to it. There's what we would call a qualifier or a characterization of the sin. And it's pointed out and revealed for us in the fifth word. Look at it, verse 26, if you will. And uh, let's read it together again, verse 26. For if we sin willfully, For if we sin willfully. Okay, so number one, the action warned against. What is it? Well, it's a sin, and it's not just a one-time occurrence sin. It is a continuation of sin. It is something that I hoard. It is uh, something that I continue to to, to do and and, uh, um, perform in my life or commit the sin that I continue to commit. Number two, we see the attitude behind the action warned against. That simple word here, willfully, says a lot. This is the attitude behind the action. You see, just as it's not speaking of an occasional failure, a slip-up, a, a, uh, the devil throwing out a snare and just getting us. We didn't see it. We, didn't, you know, we gave in to the flesh in that moment, and boy, the devil got us. And we just, just as it's not talking about that, it's not talking about us sinning, here's the key, ignorantly. Okay? It's not talking about sinning ignorantly. That's not what the, the passage is about. It is about someone who is sinning deliberately. Premeditated is a modern judicial terminology, isn't it? Okay? Premeditated, right? Like premeditated murder or whatever the case may be. It's premeditated. It's on purpose. It's, it's an action or an attitude of the will. I want to do this. I'm going to do this. Okay? We see this all the time in the old sinful nature, don't we? Okay? Our children, before they come to know Jesus Christ, have you ever told them to do something they tell you no? You ever hear a child say no? Okay, if you haven't, just go to Walmart. Stand around for about 10 minutes. Toy section, that'd be perfect. 
You'll probably see a young child that says no because it's parents, right? Why? That's, that's the flesh, right? That's the rebellion of the flesh. That's the, that's the willful. Do you understand what I'm telling you? Yes, I understand. Are you going to do it? No. Okay? We've all seen it. We've probably done it as a child, okay, until God has worked in our hearts. That's literally what's kind of being spoken of here is this rebellious, deliberate, intentional, premeditated uh, action and attitude of a willful disobedience. Now, let's put it into terms for you and I as adults. Do you ever know you ought not to do something, but you choose to do it anyway? Hmm. Do you ever uh, know you ought not to say what you're about to say, but you choose to go ahead and say it anyway? Hmm. Do you know you ought to kick that thought to the curb? You, you ought to get rid of it. You ought to bring it into captivity, not, not entertain it at all. But instead, you choose to dwell on that thought. That's what's being spoken of here continually doing that, saying, you know what, I know I ought not to do that, but I'm going to do it anyway. I know I ought not to say that, but I'm going to say it anyway. I know I ought not to think that, but I'm going to think it anyway. That continual action with the attitude of willful uh, rebellion, shall we say. It speaks of a uh, willful action, the attitude behind it. You're fully aware of what you're doing. The choice uh, is made. The action's being undertaken. It's interesting, again, it's the same Greek word that's only used in one other place here, and that's in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2. Look with me there, if you will. 1 Peter chapter number 5 and, and uh, verse number 2, that word that's translated as willfully here in, in Hebrews chapter 10 is used only one other time here in 1 Peter chapter 5, and look at verse number 2. Notice the statement. It's, he's speaking, verse number 1, to elders, to bishops, to pastors. Here's what he says in verse number 2, feed the flock of God which is among you taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. So what word do you think is the same Greek word? There's a, there's a hand. It starts out the same way. Not by constraint, but what? Willingly. Willingly. Now, that's interesting because in context, what we understand is like you're not being forced to do this. You ought, not to have, you ought not to have leaders and elders and bishops and pastors who are forced. Well, I guess I can't do anything else in the world. I might as well be a pastor. Ah, so-and-so's forcing me to do it. That's, that's literally by constraint. Well, I guess I have to do it. No, 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 no. Uh, serve, minister willingly. Do it of, and I like this terminology if we can think of it in terms of it. I want to do it willingly, voluntarily voluntarily you see the statement here it's the opposite of being forced to do something of not having any choices it's uh, of it just happening without knowing or having to say it no this is a willful voluntary action it's not done by a sudden impulse it's uh, of the will but rather don't miss it it's a settled intention of the will so when he says, listen, uh, back here in Hebrews chapter 10, and as we fully understand the, uh, his description here, verse 26, for if we sin willfully, it, it, the in settled intention of the will, I'm going to do it, I don't care what you say, I don't, care, I don't care what God's word says, I'm just going to go do it. That's literally what the passage means. It's the willful sinning and stay in sin. Well, you know, I, uh, I, I know the Bible says I shouldn't do that, but I'm going to do it anyway. And you realize the theme of the passage? This is where it gets rather sobering. 
My friend, if you are a Christian and you are in sin tonight, you better beware of being in the judgment of God. That's what it's at. That verse 31 is very, uh, kind of holds over your head, doesn't it? It is a fearful thing to fall into the hand of the living God. We just read a few moments ago, who, who judges his people? The Lord does. The Lord does. It's a fearful thing. Someone who willfully, who, who, who does, you know, these sins of, you know what, I know the Bible says that, but I don't care. I don't think it's that big of a deal. I, I know the Bible says I ought not to do that, but I, you know what, it's not that. It, 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 who cares? Well, God cares. He speaks against it, and he says it ought not so to be. It's a settled intention of the will. You know, we like to use a term, maybe I should say I like to use the term, the volition of the will. A person's volition, literally that term uh, means the conscience personal choice made by the will of a person. It's not like, well, I didn't know I was doing that. No, 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 you knew exactly. It's the settled intentions of the will, the personal conscience choice made by the will of a person. The action's wrong. The attitude behind it is wrong. So but the action, what is it? Well, sinning and continuing in sin, doing something repeatedly. The attitude behind it is willfully. Yeah, there's no remorse. There's seemingly no guilt. There's no, oh, God, I'm sorry. I didn't mean, oh, I just fell into that. I tripped into that. I didn't see it coming. No, no, no. You willfully went after it. You sought after it, and you committed the act. And I'll tell you, my friend, such willful disobedience is something that God has never tolerated. He's never tolerated. He's always taken it very seriously. We are familiar from Hebrews here, the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament among the Jews, the high priest would offer the sacrifice. You remember, that sacrifice was for the entire year for all the sins of Israel. In addition to the Day of Atonement, there were different sacrifices and offerings they would bring to the temple to be offered on a daily basis for offenses, for transgressions, for sins. We could look down throughout the Old Testament, Exodus and Numbers, and we could read all about those and see those, okay? However, now don't miss this. However, when it came to these kinds of sins, these intentional, deliberate, willful sins, where someone commits something, uh, you know, kind of, I'm going to do it regardless of what God says, God takes them and treats them differently. You remember what they're called in the Old Testament? There's a particular or specific term that God uses in the Old Testament to describe these kinds of sins. And he says, listen, there's one law for these sins, the sins that you and I could fall into, the the sins that you and I commit uh, ignorantly. uh, I didn't catch myself before I said that, before I thought that. uh, Father, I'm sorry. And it's not the willful sin, but these sins are different. He says there's a law for those kinds of sin, and there's a law for this kind of sin that he describes and calls, big word, right, the presumptuous sins. The presumptuous sins. It means deliberate. It means intentional. It means a, a little bit of arrogancy to it. It's willful. It's even flagrant. Okay? Those of you who like, um, who like basketball, flagrant foul, right? Okay? It's flagrant. It's kind of in your face. It's, I, I don't care what you think. It's flagrant. It's intentional disobedience. It takes it up to a whole different level, uh, that willful disobedience, the willful sinning, the willful rebellion against what is known to be right in what was instructed. Now, here's what's amazing to me. And the author here, who I believe to be Paul, 
is saying there's a differentiation that God puts on it, that, that God describes in his law for how you deal with something that is done deliberately, willfully, as opposed to someone who does it ignorantly. Now, here's the problem. In context of Hebrews chapter 10, he's saying, listen, Christian, you've been exposed and you've heard so much about what God wants, the heart of God, the instructions of God, everything that God has given us in his word. And if you go back and you live in the world, and we'll see it next week, but it's like you're trampling Christ and his sacrifice under your feet. If you realize that every sin you commit is nailed him to the cross, it took his shed blood to cover that sin, for you to continue in sin, to willfully do so. Ooh, he describes it here. That's a terrible thing. It's a terrible thing. Just as it was pictured for us in the Old Testament. Okay, we'll finish up tonight. Let's look at two passages, shall we? Exodus chapter 21. I want you to see what I've just shared with you uh, in the scriptures. Don't take my word for it. Just look at Exodus chapter 21, if you will. A couple example passages. There's many others we could look at, but, or several others we could look at. But look at Exodus chapter 21 with me, if you will. And like I said, we'll finish up here in these two Old Testament passages for this evening. But in Exodus chapter number 21... We're going to pick up in verse number 12, okay? Talking about killing, talking about smiting a man, right? Here's what he says, Exodus chapter 21, verse 12. He that smiteth a man so that he die shall be surely put to death. And if a man, now notice this description, lie not in wait, but God deliver him into his hand, then I will appoint thee a place whither he shall flee okay we know that god set up those cities right the cities of refuge that they could flee to if they they killed a man if they were uh killed a man that like uh, killed somebody that was related to them or whatever the case may be many descriptions in scripture okay he's saying listen if if you didn't lie in wait if this wasn't premeditated if this wasn't a willful deliverer you're out I'm, I'm gonna go kill him no matter what happens to me or or no matter what comes and what whatever I, i'm gonna go you know if, if he didn't have that mentality that man said but it happens then god said okay i'm gonna prepare a city of refuge that he can go in until the next high priest comes along or the uh the this uh, year of jubilee whatever uh by which he could leave okay so he said i'm gonna do that but notice the next verse okay he said, that person didn't line wait, but notice the next verse, verse number 14. But if a man come, uh-oh, here's the word, presumptuously, deliberate, intentionally, if somewhat arrogantly, willfully, upon his neighbor to slay him with guile. In other words, he's kind of laying in wait. He, he's subtly going after him. He's going he's to trick him and then kill him. Notice verse 14. Thou shalt take him from mine altar that he may. That doesn't sound like a city of refuge, does it? We read through the Old Testament sometimes when some of these kings and other people were running for their lives. What did they do when they were running for their lives? They ran in the temple and they did what? Put their, hand, their, their, head, their hands on the altar, didn't they? And I love the reference in this verse. Because that was like a, 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 a term of mercy and a, a pleading for mercy, a begging for mercy. And, and I like what it said here. Thou shalt take him from mine altar. He's sitting there hanging on. He thinks he's going to get mercy. No, 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 no. This is a presumptuous sin. This is a willful, deliberate sin. He knows better. He laid in wait for this person. He did it by guile. No, 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 no. 
that's on a whole different level here. And God's going to judge that. And you will judge that as my people, he said, the Israel. So you take him away from the altar so that he may die. Now look at the next passage, if we will, Numbers chapter 15. Numbers chapter 15. Spells out the same thing, maybe a little bit more extensive in this passage. Numbers chapter 15, verses 27 through 31. Numbers chapter 15 and verses 27 and following. Notice what it says here. It uses some of the same terminology we've already used in our study of Hebrews 10. Notice what it says, verse number 27, particularly here at the beginning. And if any soul sin through, what's the next word? Ignorance. Okay, so we, we, we've already seen the differentiation that God's going to make. We here. If he sins through ignorance, then he shall bring a she-goat of the first year for a sin offering. Okay, so there's a particular offering described, prescribed for him to bring to pay for this sin that was committed in ignorance. Verse 28, and the priest shall make an atonement for the soul that sinneth, here's the word again, ignorantly. When he sinneth by ignorance before the Lord to make an atonement for him, and it shall be forgiven him. And what a statement. That, that's, a, that's a whole different ballgame here. Ignorantly, ignorantly, and ignorantly. It's described. Now we move on. Verse 29. Ye shall have one law for him that sinneth through ignorance, both for him that is born among the children of Israel and for the stranger that sojourneth among them. Verse 30. But, all right, comparison and contrast. But the soul that doeth ought, here's our word, presumptuously, whether he be born in the land or a stranger, the same reproacheth the Lord. And that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Verse 31. Why? Good question. Here it is. Because he hath despised the word of the Lord and hath broken his commandment. That soul shall utterly be cut off. His iniquity shall be upon him. You're talking about two different laws, two different handlings of these situations. God says, listen, I, it's going to happen. I know you. I know the frailty of your frame. I know exactly what you're made up of, person, Christian. I know that that old flesh and old nature is fighting on a daily basis. It matters not who you are. If you're a Christian, boy, that struggle, that wrestling's going on. There will be times that you and I sig- sin ignorantly where we, man, we don't catch ourselves in time and we say something or we think something. Or, and God says, man, just confess that, forsake it. And I'll cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But there's other times when there's a Christian who says, I know it's wrong. I know exactly I shouldn't be doing this, but I don't care. I I, I know that's not the right thing to do. I know I shouldn't say that, uh, but I want to say it anyway. I'm going to say it anyway, and they continually do so. Or I I should ought not to do that, but they continually do it. It is a willful sin. It is a presumptuous sin as it's described here. Now, in the weeks ahead, we'll see from the Old Testament even how in the passage in Hebrews 10, it references another big additional one, and that's the, the serving of false gods, the, the worshiping of idols that, uh, that he puts with this. But the warning here is serious because it's an action of sin, a sin that is committed time and time again, and there is an attitude behind it of, I'll do what I want. It is rebellious. It is an intentional disobedience to the very word of God. And so what does he say here in this passage here in Numbers? 
the very word of God, the very sacrifice of Christ is what he says in Hebrews 10, is being despised and reviled in this committed action. Literally, Christ is saying, God is saying, here's how sin gets a firm grip in a Christian's life. And my friend, if you're a Christian and you are consistently sinning and you know it, be careful. The Lord chastens his own. He chastens his own. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hand of God. He is loving, but he is so loving that he will not allow us to get away with presumptuous sins. He will deal with them and he will judge them accordingly. You see the passage here, literally the theme is this. Christians cannot sin and get away with it. Cannot sin and get away with it. So what's the encouragement for you and I tonight? It's simply this. Ensure tonight that we don't have any ongoing willful sin in our life. Can I just tell you right now, if you and I have not have unconfessed sin and it's something that we have repeated, we sure don't want God to take care of it. We want to take care of it. We want to take care of it. We want to throw ourselves on the mercy of God. One of the interesting passages, and I'm just about done, one of the interesting passages in the Old Testament is Psalm 51. If you know Psalm 51 very well, it's David, and he is pleading for the mercy of God. You know what's interesting about Psalm 51 is in that you can read into it, and you'll find out that David is kind of referencing what we study tonight. He's saying, listen, I'm realizing those sacrifices cannot take away my sin. I need the mercy of God. Because can I tell you, David, he committed a presumptuous sin. It was willful. But he also understood that there is mercy to be had if at any time I come and confess my sin and forsake it and turn to a merciful God. God said what? I'll cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So it's a call to repentance. It is a reminder that you and I as Christians have to be on guard so that we don't fall into a willful sin. Uh, committing it continually, committing it with an attitude, ah, that's not that big of a deal. God doesn't care. But rather, confess it, forsake it, ask for forgiveness. And I don't know about you, but I sure am thankful we can enjoy the mercy of God extended to us through his offered forgiveness. That's what this passage is really all about. We'll get more into it next week.